Hello and welcome to The History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Black and Blue, Ralph Ellison. Here's something that must have happened, and probably more than once. A young person, not overly familiar with the history of Western literature, asked someone for a book recommendation, mentioning their particular interest in reading science fiction. The trusted advisor suggests H.G. Wells's 1897 classic of the genre, The Invisible Man. Off the young person goes to the library or the bookstore, where they find a volume on the shelf with the title Invisible Man. Not noticing the missing the, or perhaps thinking they must have heard the title wrong, they take home Ralph Ellison's 1952 masterpiece and embark upon a reading experience very different from the one intended for them. Ellison's Invisible Man is of course not a work of science fiction, but rather one of the most ambitious and compelling attempts in the history of creative literature to capture the meaning of being black. The confusion would become clear no later than the book's opening paragraph. I am an invisible man, it begins, but then continues, no, I am not a spook like those who haunted Edgar Allan Poe, nor am I one of your Hollywood movie ectoplasms. I am a man of substance, of flesh and bone, fiber and liquids, and I might even be said to possess a mind. The book is thus not about invisibility in the fantastical sense featured in Wells's book, and indeed in works as old as Plato's Republic. There we find the story of the Ring of Gyges, which turns its possessor invisible. We are asked to consider why someone granted this power would ever choose to act justly. The kind of invisibility at stake in Ellison's book is explained in its first paragraph. I am invisible, understand, simply because people refuse to see me. And then further in the second paragraph, that invisibility to which I refer occurs because of a particular disposition of the eyes of those with whom I come in contact. The invisibility described here is thus a matter of a failure to see on the part of others, rather than any trick or deception on the part of the invisible person. We therefore have in Ellison's book another vision-based metaphor for American racism, like the one Du Bois gave us with his famous metaphor of the veil. As Ellison notes, though, the invisibility that comes with being black may be similar to that conferred by the Ring of Gyges. It is sometimes advantageous to be unseen. But, he continues, it is most often rather wearing on the nerves. As with Du Bois's notion of double consciousness, part of the effect of this experience of invisibility is a struggle with being able to see oneself clearly. You often doubt if you really exist. You wonder whether you aren't simply a phantom in other people's minds. Unlike Richard Wright's characters Bigger Thomas and Cross Damon, the main character of Invisible Man is never named. He is, however, like the titular character of the novel by Wright that was posthumously published in 2021, a man living underground. As the book begins, we find the Invisible Man, as we'll call him, with apologies to H.G. Wells, Plato, and while we're at it, J.R.R. Tolkien, living rent-free in a closed-off and forgotten section of a basement in a building that is near, but not in, Harlem, a building whose paying tenants are all white. He refers to this living space as a hole. It is careful to clarify that it is not cold and dark, as we might suspect, but warm and full of light. After all, he has wired the place with exactly 1,369 light bulbs, which partly symbolize a sense of enlightenment, given his quip, the truth is the light, and light is the truth. 
The invisible man has thus made the little world of his whole as visible as possible. And it is not just the ability to see, but the pleasure of sound that is important to him. The invisible man has a record player, but wants to obtain four more so that he can play Louis Armstrong's What Did I Do to Be So Black and Blue on five record players at the same time. As we will see, jazz was very important to Ellison, to his life, as well as his writing. In the book's prologue, we see him use jazz to explore the meaning of invisibility. The Invisible Man claims that Armstrong has managed to make poetry out of being invisible, and hypothesizes that Armstrong has been able to do this precisely because he is unaware of being invisible. But if it is such a lack of awareness that has made this artistic achievement possible, the Invisible Man believes it is his own grasp of his invisibility that enables him to understand Armstrong's music so well. He then describes an experience he had of listening to Armstrong while under the influence of a reefer joint given to him as a joke when he'd asked for a cigarette. He feels himself descend into the music and has a vision involving an old woman singing a spiritual, an enslaved woman with skin the color of ivory, and a sermon by a preacher on the theme of the blackness of blackness. He has a sometimes tense exchange with the enslaved woman, touching on what it means to both love and hate one's master and the question of what would it mean to be free. This remarkable prologue ends with a reflection on the relationship between invisibility and responsibility. Echoing themes in Hegel's philosophy, the invisible man claims that with invisibility comes irresponsibility, because responsibility rests upon recognition, and recognition is a form of agreement. It should be clear by now that Invisible Man is a novel of ideas, a narrative work that does not conceal the philosophical relevance of its themes, language, and imagery. It is also a sprawling work. We have thus far described only the prologue that precedes its 25 chapters, which are further capped by an epilogue. Starting in the first chapter, the Invisible Man tells his story, the long journey of his life that brought him to where he is. It is on the one hand a strange and varied series of mishaps, but also, significantly for our purposes, a tour through the intellectual currents shaping African-American life and thought in the 20th century. Booker T. Washington is a major presence early on. Some of the early invocations of Washington emerge within one of the book's darkest and most jarring presentations of racism. The Invisible Man graduates from high school in his southern hometown, and given the success of his graduation day address, he's invited to speak at a gathering of the town's leading white citizens. As it turns out, the powerful white men at this gathering want some entertainment first. That turns out to be a battle royale in which the Invisible Man and nine of his schoolmates must fight each other blindfolded until one or none is left standing. Later, after this brutal and humiliating spectacle, the Invisible Man is called on to give his speech. Speaking while blood wells up in his mouth, he quotes directly from Washington's Atlanta Exposition Address. One cannot help but see a rebuke of the accommodationist values of the address in this disturbing moment. Washington remains important, however, as the Invisible Man goes off to study at a black state college, supported by a scholarship given to him after his speech. On the campus of this college stands a statue of its founder lifting a veil off of a kneeling slave. The statue described here is nearly identical to a monument to Washington erected on the campus of Tuskegee in 1922. Entitled Lifting the Veil of Ignorance, this statue would have been very familiar to Ellison given his time studying at Tuskegee, 
from 1933 to 1936. It's therefore logical to see more criticism of Washington in the invisible man's claim that, as he thinks back on the statue, he is puzzled, unable to decide whether the veil is really being lifted or lowered more firmly. The only complication in identifying the unnamed founder of this unnamed fictional college with Washington is that by this point in the book, Washington has already been mentioned and discussed by name. There's even a passage later on in which the invisible man responds to someone who tells him that he could be the next Booker T. Washington by saying that he thinks of the founder as greater than Washington. The solution to this difficulty is not to refrain from seeing the founder as an allusion to Washington, but rather to accept that Ellison gives himself a certain freedom in critically depicting and commenting upon real-life figures and movements by virtue of this kind of close, but not total, identification. There are, in fact, close parallels not only between Washington and the founder, but also between Washington and Dr. Bledsoe, the founder's successor at the college. Ellison's playful uses of Washington in the first third of the book prepare us for the creative ways he evokes Marxism and Garveyism later on. The Invisible Man ends up in New York City, where his first job is at Liberty Paints. The company's signature product is called Optic White, a paint whose intensely pure whiteness is achieved only after one adds drops of a black liquid. In a book full of symbolism, this one certainly leaves a mark, or perhaps a splotch. A major turning point in the book comes when the Invisible Man happens upon an eviction of an old black couple in Harlem. He finds himself compelled to speak to the gathered crowd, and ends up inciting them to resist and interfere with the eviction. This action brings him to the attention of the Brotherhood, an organization that clearly stands in for the Communist Party. The Brotherhood believes in a scientific approach to history, in a sense evidently akin to Orthodox Marxism. The Invisible Man joins the Brotherhood as the chief spokesman for its Harlem section, though consistent with a theme that we've tracked in the lives of figures like Aimé Césaire and Richard Wright, the Brotherhood eventually disappoints and alienates him. He comes to see them as using, rather than respecting, black people. At one point, the Invisible Man is gifted a portrait of Frederick Douglass by an older black member of the Brotherhood. This is significant, as there are a number of parallels between Douglass and the Invisible Man. Both come from the South to the North, distinguish themselves by speaking out publicly, and then, just as Douglass eventually had to break with William Lloyd Garrison and the Garrisonians, with whom he got his start, the Invisible Man has to break eventually with the Brotherhood. Recall that Douglas was once told, give us the facts, we will take care of the philosophy. There is some echo of this when the Invisible Man is told by Brother Jack, the leader of the Brotherhood, you were not hired to think. Marcus Garvey and Garveyism are represented in the book through a character called Raz the Exhorter. Like Garvey, Raz comes from the Caribbean, and preaches a militant form of black nationalism. Just as with Booker T. Washington, Garvey is given a literary double in the shape of Ras, but also mentioned by name as a distinct figure. And just as the real Garvey was critical of socialists, Ras warns of the futility and shame of pursuing interracial cooperation through the Brotherhood, rather than banding together with black people to achieve power. Brother Todd Clifton, generally referred to by his last name, is another black member of the Brotherhood and he faces off against Raz alongside the Invisible Man. The book's next big turning point, which leads steadily towards its chaotic climax, is the killing of Clifton by police. The speech by the Invisible Man at Clifton's funeral 
remains painfully relevant today. He says of Clifton's shocking choice to strike a police officer, he thought he was a man and that men were not meant to be pushed around. But it was hot downtown and he forgot his history. He forgot the time and the place. He lost his hold on reality. Of the police officer who killed Clifton, he says, he was a cop, a good citizen. But this cop had an itching finger and an eager ear for a word that rhymed with trigger. And when Clifton fell, he had found it. Criticism of this speech and the organizing of the funeral, as failures of party discipline, does much to lay the groundwork for the invisible man's break with the Brotherhood. Meanwhile, Harlem is experiencing increasing civil unrest in the wake of Clifton's death. The unrest is encouraged by Raz, who no longer calls himself Raz the Exhorter, but Raz the Destroyer. Among the traitors to the race he wishes to destroy is the Invisible Man, and the two of them have a violent confrontation that the Invisible Man survives. Soon after this, while escaping another possible violent confrontation with some white men, he falls into a manhole, and this is the beginning of his life underground, thus bringing us to where the novel began. In the epilogue, he reflects on what he has learned from his journey and considers that it may be time for him to come out of his hibernation. The author of this remarkable work was born in Oklahoma City in 1913 and given the name Ralph Waldo Ellison. He's named after one of America's greatest philosophical minds, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and his father apparently hoped to raise a great poet, which Emerson also was. Sadly, his father never got to see the success Ellison achieved as a wordsmith as he died as a result of a work-related accident when young Ralph was three years old. When he reached high school, Ellison began to cultivate a talent for music, playing in and helping to lead the school band. His instrument was the same as Louis Armstrong's The Trumpet. Though the music he was taught at school was primarily Western classical music, his love for jazz developed at this time as well. He even managed to participate in practice sessions by the Blue Devils, a jazz band based in Oklahoma City that featured players as notable as the great saxophonist Lester Young. Ellison did not ultimately pursue a career in music, but it was trumpet playing that brought him to Tuskegee. He went there to study music and to play in the Institute's orchestra. Given lack of money and the requirements to get to Tuskegee as quickly as possible, Ellison made his way from Oklahoma City to Alabama by hoboing or riding the rails, a memorable and at times thrilling, but also dangerous and draining experience. Like the Invisible Man, Ellison went from Tuskegee to New York. He was ostensibly in New York to gain money for the next semester's tuition at Tuskegee, but he never did return to the school. Truth being stranger than fiction, what he did do on only his second day in New York City was run into Alain Locke and Langston Hughes in the lobby of the YMCA in Harlem, where he was staying. He had met Locke once before when Locke visited Tuskegee. This helped with being introduced to Hughes, who became a mentor to him. At first, Ellison replaced his pursuit of music at Tuskegee with the pursuit of sculpture, but he eventually came to see writing as his true calling, in part no doubt thanks to the influence of Hughes. Hughes was also an influence in his increasing exposure and attraction to a leftist political orientation, although perhaps even more important to mention in this regard is Louise Thompson, later known after a marriage as Louise Thompson Patterson. Last mentioned on this podcast in our interview with Vanessa Wills in episode 73, she was a member of the Communist Party. Visits to her home offered a salon-like atmosphere that was perfect for introducing young artists and intellectuals to Marxist thought. We can also thank Hughes for introducing Ellison to Richard Wright. Wright had moved from Chicago to New York in 1937 
and become the editor of the Harlem branch of the Daily Worker, the newspaper of the Communist Party of the USA. He encouraged Ellison's writing aspirations, inviting him to write a book review for New Challenge, the short-lived literary magazine in which Wright published his manifesto, Blueprint for Negro Writing. Soon, Ellison was publishing for communist-associated outlets like the journal New Masses. He and Wright also both worked for the Federal Writers Project, part of the Depression-era public works activities of the Works Progress Administration. Ellison collected folklore for the FWP, like Zora Neale Hurston, who was also employed by the project. Ellison's close friendship with Wright continued through the period in which Wright gained broad literary success with the publication of his Native Son. Ellison wrote a review for New Masses that proclaimed, In Wright's Native Son, we have the first philosophical novel by an American Negro. This work possesses an artistry, penetration of thought, and sheer emotional power that places it into the front rank of American fiction. Soon after this period, however, distance grew between them, partly because Ellison arguably took the side of Wright's first wife during the dissolution of their marriage. In years to come, Ellison would reflect in increasingly sophisticated ways on both the strengths and limitations of Wright's writing, on what he shared with Wright, as well as what differentiated their approaches. Early in the 1940s, Ellison collaborated with activist Angelo Herndon on a periodical called Negro Quarterly. By the time it folded, Ellison had begun to distance himself from the left, the sphere within which most of his writing and public activity thus far had been pursued. In his biography of Ellison, Arnold Rampersad notes a difference between Ellison's and Wright's breaks with communism. Where Wright surrendered his party membership while remaining a Marxist and a radical at heart, Ralph was on his way toward the political center. After the war, during which he served as a merchant marine, Ellison began to come up with the ideas that would coalesce into Invisible Man. Toward the end of the long process of writing the book, he apparently cut down on some of its explicit philosophical content. For example, according to another of his biographers, Lawrence Jackson, the prologue originally included this line, an allusion to Soren Kierkegaard's The Sickness Unto Death, All sickness is not unto death, neither is invisibility. In any case, the novel, bursting enough as it is with philosophical content, was published to widespread acclaim in 1952. The next year, it won the prestigious National Book Award, beating out Ernest Hemingway's The Old Man and the Sea. Ellison was henceforward recognized as one of the country's greatest novelists, a designation that has stuck and perhaps even become more entrenched after his death in 1994. Yet his fame as a novelist rests completely on Invisible Man, he never produced another long work of fiction during the course of the four decades of his life after its publication. It is not that he lost interest in writing novels. He worked hard at producing one, writing copiously. One major setback was a fire at his summer home in Plainfield, Massachusetts in 1967, which consumed a large portion of a manuscript. The fire cannot take all the blame, however, given how much time he still had to pull something together. Ellison is often seen as the perfect example of someone whose ambition to match a brilliant first effort results in so much pressure that no second effort ever comes forth. A novel entitled Juneteenth was published in 1999, compiled by his literary executor out of the huge amounts of material he left behind. We can, of course, only speculate about whether that book is anything like what he would have wanted to put out. If those who love creative writing are disappointed that all we got from Ellison was this one book, Invisible Man, 
there's much less reason to be disappointed in his output as a writer for the purposes of this podcast. Ellison not only wrote, but published a large output of nonfiction over the course of his life, before and after Invisible Man, making him one of the most celebrated essayists in the history of African-American literature. He published two superb collections of his essays, Shadow and Act in 1964, and Going to the Territory in 1986, which no less than Invisible Man reward philosophical attention. In the introduction to Shadow and Act, Ellison notes that the essays collected in that volume concern three general themes, literature and folklore, Negro musical expression, especially jazz and the blues, and the complex relationship between the Negro-American subculture and North American culture as a whole. All three themes come together in his 1964 review of Blues People, a book by Leroy Jones, or as he would not too long thereafter become known, Amiri Baraka. It is a book about Black music in America, one which assumes that to examine this music will reveal something about the essential nature of the Negro's existence in this country. Ellison respects it as a personal vision, as an earnest young man's attempt to come to grips with his predicament as a Negro-American during a most turbulent period of our history. He is sharply critical of it, however, as a theory of American Negro culture. For Ellison, it exemplifies the folly of trying to understand this culture while ignoring the intricate networks of connections which bind Negroes to the larger society. We have here a major theme in Ellison's thought, the fundamental Americanness of African Americans. While never seeking to deny the existence of various forms of social, political, and economic oppression, Ellison regularly locates an almost total freedom on the level of culture that places African Americans at the center of an evolving and thoroughly pluralistic American identity. With respect to music, he writes, from the days of their introduction into the colonies, Negroes have taken, with the ruthlessness of those without articulate investments in cultural styles, whatever they could of European music, making of it that which would, when blended with the cultural tendencies inherited from Africa, express their own sense of life while rejecting the rest. The flip side to this theme is, while something of a logical consequence, arguably a bolder and more surprising notion, the blackness of white America. This is, of course, part of what is expressed by the symbol of those black drops making white paint in Invisible Man. It is stated more explicitly in What America Would Be Like Without Blacks, first published in Time magazine in 1970, where he writes, The melting pot did indeed melt, creating such deceptive metamorphoses and blending of identities, values, and lifestyles that most American whites are culturally part Negro-American without even realizing it. Giving the example of Mark Twain's Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, he points out, no Huck and Jim, no American novel as we know it. Those who want to hear more from Ellison about the importance of the American novel have ample material to read. One of the most obvious places to go would be his essay, Society, Morality, and the Novel, in which he argues that the novel is an art form especially well-suited for coming to terms with social change. Given how much social change characterizes the development of American life, if there'd been no such thing as the novel before America became conscious of itself as a nation, Americans would have had to invent it. We will close, however, with a brief look at perhaps his most famous essay on writing, The World and the Jug. It was written in response to an essay by literary critic Irving Howe, Black Boys and Native Sons, which Ellison viewed as a kind of tribute to write. 
one that privileged Wright's militancy over the fiction of James Baldwin and Ellison himself, and inaccurately depicted African Americans as profoundly unfree. Ellison writes, Howe seems to see segregation as an opaque steel jug with the Negroes inside waiting for some black messiah to come along and blow the cork. What this gets wrong, he argues, is that if we are in a jug, it is transparent, not opaque, and one is allowed not only to see outside, but to read what is going on out there and to make identifications as to values and human quality. The imagination is free even if the body is not, which has implications for what it means to be an African-American writer. Perhaps most provocatively, Ellison argues near the essay's end that artists may not be able to choose their relatives, but they can choose their ancestors. Wright and Hughes, according to Ellison, were his relatives. By contrast, he designates Hemingway, T.S. Eliot, André Malraux, Fyodor Dostoevsky, and William Faulkner as ancestors. He claims to have taken more inspiration from Hemingway than from Wright because Hemingway wrote in a way that showed appreciation for various things in life that Wright seemed to miss. In fact, Ellison claims that Hemingway's writing was imbued with a spirit beyond the tragic, with which I could feel at home, for it was very close to the feeling of the blues, which are perhaps as close as Americans can come to expressing the spirit of tragedy. For Ellison, then, being black and blue, as Armstrong captured it, is not something that stands in the way of connecting to the works of great white authors. If you think about the political developments that are coming in 1960s America, you might be able to predict that this stance would become controversial. In that decade, Ellison would find himself at odds with militant students who envisioned black identity as more separate from white Americanness than he would ever be willing to admit. It would also be a difficult period for the subject of our next episode, whom we've just mentioned as the other villain in Howe's essay, as contrasted to the more militant right. He is the third in our trilogy of great African-American novelists of the mid-20th century, and a figure who, like Ellison, resisted the sort of stark racial antagonism he detected in such movements as Elijah Muhammad's Nation of Islam. To put it baldly, the winning move would be to join us next time to learn about James Baldwin, here on The History of Africana Philosophy.